What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Brandon the Cruz. Brandon, um, I think at this point, we might as well just make you the guest host. Thank you for, for being back, dude. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure to be on here. And uh, I always appreciate the warm welcome, man. It's it's good to be able to have found, you know, we've built a friendship, a mentorship between both of us. And um, I always look forward to these, man. I get a lot of podcast invites, I'll be honest. And not for anyone listening out there that that's hearing this, but I, I honestly prioritize a lot of times when you and I are going to do a podcast because I think we're able to engage one another and also dive into some topics that other people in this industry aren't covering or aren't covering in the detail that you and I have an interest in. And I really appreciate that you're a critical thinker. Uh, and I, you know, I appreciate both your friendship and then also your team, man. It's been great working with you guys, seeing your progression just today. You know, Andy tagging in a post about expanding her education and just being willing to invest in yourself as a coach. And I think that's something that's often overlooked. Like a lot of people don't realize that coaches need coaches as well. We need mentors. We need other people. We stand on the, on the shoulders of giants. So, you know, just like I try to, you know, be able to relay information, valuable uh, insight from my own experience and from my own research onto podcasts and onto individuals like yourself. Um, I have mentors that I go to for the same. So it's always nice when we're able to link up and, and really, you know, kind of get um, connected with a like-minded individual. Absolutely, man. And we appreciate all you've done for us as a team so much as well. Um, I know that has advanced our knowledge and our ability to help clients so quickly. It is an interesting thing in the fitness industry where it's like, so many coaches I know could look at like, okay, well, if you, you're struggling with fat loss, if you just hired a coach, you could get there so much quicker, right? You could like, you could navigate all these obstacles so much quicker and more effectively. But of course the trade-off is like, you have to make an investment, but same thing with coaching. Man. I think so many coaches that like preach the value of coaching overlook the value of actually having coaches and mentorship themselves. We're like, uh, and like, as always, like mentors are a big investment, but it helps so much. Like, I'm so thankful for her. And I know she tagged a bunch of people in that post that we've learned so much from. And that's just like, I can't stress that enough for other coaches listening. It's just in like, Brandon, I know you offer amazing mentorship. Like I can't recommend enough. Like if you're trying to like all these nuanced, advanced topics that we're learning about, if you want to learn how to apply those with your clients, like hit up. And I don't know if you're still taking on people in the mentorship capacity, but like, it's not something that I can recommend enough that you invest in if you are a coach yourself. No, I definitely appreciate that. And I am actively taking on mentees currently. But the whole thing is, is I invest into myself and I always try to relate to my mentees. And then anyone that asks me about the process of mentorship, we're just investing in your education as a whole. If you're a coach and you're unwilling to invest in your own education and your own advancement of both your knowledge and your career, how can you expect your clients to? This is all an investment. Absolutely. This is a ripple effect and this comes full circle. So just like I've invested tens upon, you know, into the hundreds of thousands into my own education, you know, I did that and I continue to do so to be able to, I want to learn more so that I could serve more. That's my whole mission statement in life and with my coaching. And there's that ripple effect of coaching. So I can teach you something and you can apply it. You know, I can teach you and Andy and the rest of your team something and you apply it to dozens of other clients. And it's like, those are 50, 60, hundred people that I could not work with personally, but they're still able to get great information. My whole thing is trying to bridge the gap between like research, information, and experience, and then application. So if I'm able to do that through a mentorship, through a podcast, that's one of my mission statements. So I'm all about it. Absolutely, man. I love it. All right. So to dig into today's topic, which is nutrient timing, this is one I'm excited to get into. Something personally I love nerding out about. I know I've learned a ton from you in this regard. And I know from our previous podcast, we got a lot of questions around nutrient timing because I think the last three or four episodes we've done have all had like a big component of it has been the importance of nutrient timing. So I'm really excited to get into this. As we discussed, this will very likely be a two-part episode because I don't think we can break it down in like within an hour very feasibly. But I truly think from the outline we have here, this is going to be the most in-depth podcast, like piece of information out there as far as nutrient timing goes. So let's go ahead and kick it off, starting with what is nutrient timing and why would we worry about it? Why would we use it? All right. So uh, in general, nutrient timing basically refers to how we allocate both calories and nutrients across the course of the day, both in relation to your training and then other activities as well as your lifestyle. Um, So when we look at nutrition, like from a hierarchical perspective, we need to realize that the most important and the fundamentals are your calories, your macronutrients, your food composition, and your micros. But how and when you time your ingestion of these nutrients 
can optimize the results you get from the exact same calorie and macro intake as when you eat can influence how those nutrients get used and partitioned, as well as what tissues they get stored in, whether that be in muscle or fat tissue. And these are concepts, especially the concept of nutrient partitioning is something that we've covered on the P-Ratio podcasts and many of the things that we've done together. So this is more of an in-depth look at not what is nutrient partitioning, but how does nutrient timing affect this and how can we optimize things? And when it comes to nutrient timing, it's a more nuanced topic, to be honest. And it's not something that everyone considers or applies, but I'll say in my own coaching, I'm trying to help my clients improve every aspect of their body composition, their training performance, um, recovery, and metabolic health. So if nutrient timing can help them improve, say, 10%, I'm more than happy to get into the nuances of it because it's worth it to me. And so utilizing nutrient timing and getting in the right nutrients at the right times is something we should use as it can help improve performance. It can help accelerate recovery. Um, we're going to maximize muscle growth during like a building phase or even preserve muscle mass during a fat loss phase. And also there's other downstream benefits such as it's going to help us optimize digestion. It's going to help increase energy, focus, cognition, um, which all have downstream effects both on our body composition, but also our metabolic health. So it's not just about one thing or the other. We're, we're fueling performance, but we're also fueling our body composition outcomes, our health, and it's a multi-pronged approach, which has so many benefits. What we have to realize is we can only train as hard as we can recover from, and nutrition is our number one tool to fuel performance and enhance recovery. So I think it's you know important to also realize that Although like a lot of us in the fitness industry, we look at training in this box as though it's just, you know, an independent stressor. A lot of times, to be honest with you, when I discuss this with clients and even with other individuals that have a profession in this, they don't even see training as a stress. But the thing is that training isn't the only activity that we need to, you know, recover from in order to adapt and grow. We have to recover from every other stress in life, including our training. And then, you know, in context, we have to consider our work life, our home life other stresses outside of the gym and they all compound to create what's called allostatic load or your total stress bucket essentially, which is why strategically planning out our meal composition in terms of the nutrients and the timing of those meals, as well as our supplements can help us improve our performance, our health, and ultimately get the results like better results from the program that we're following. Absolutely, man. And I think you summed that up very well. I know a lot of coaches specifically, like when you bring on coaches, a lot of times it will be like, hey, I've dug so deep into all these nuances of training, um, making sure I'm optimizing every facet of that. But then when we dig into nutrient timing, it's like, oh, yeah, I actually like, don't track my food or really pay attention to nutrition, right? And it's again, I think it's looking at it as this whole ecosystem of things that impacts your results. And as you said, this can't have a massive impact on your body composition, how well we recover, how well we grow new muscle tissue, and your health as a whole. So, um, I imagine most of this is going to be centered around peri-workout nutrition. Um, so let's take into what is peri-workout nutrition and what does it encompass? Yeah, before I get into peri-workout nutrition, I do want to comment on something because you brought up uh, an actual conversation I just had with a client and he's a high-level coach himself and he's very good in the nuances of training. So he's always optimizing every aspect. He goes to a lot of biomechanics workshops. He's been to N1 courses uh, in person. So this guy is dialed in. And so what I was trying to get across to him is I do his nutrition and I was trying to conceptualize the fact that just like we periodize our training, whether, you know, he specifically goes through metabolic phases, neurological phases, uh, hypertrophy phases, and he has all these subtle nuances from ex exercise execution, exercise selection, uh, uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio, just like he's getting into those nuances that go far beyond just volume, um, intensity, and things of that sort. That's the same type of perspective as nutrient timing is to nutrition. It's not the big rocks, it's the pebbles. But once you've nailed the big rocks and you're already at an advanced level, these are the smaller pebbles you need to overturn to get yourself into the next, to get yourself to the next level. And we have to realize that, you know, for ourselves that are advanced trainees, and then a lot of people that are listening to this, you're at the intermediate or the advanced level, and you're just nailing calories, you're just nailing macros, but you're not really paying attention to food composition, or you're not paying attention to nutrient timing, you're leaving gains on the table which is where this peri-workout nutrition is really going to come in. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, be able to show you guys the benefits of just including some of these strategies. And, and I encourage you guys to, you know, apply them to yourself. I always encourage people, you know, whatever I put out into a podcast, it's not that you have to do these things or have to do them all, but look at yourself as a science experiment, you know, test something and then gauge your response to it. And you lose nothing through your process, except you learn something. So 
going back to peri-workout nutrition, this basically refers to the nutritional approach you take to the period surrounding your training session. So this is going to encompass your pre-workout, your intra-workout, and your post-workout meal. And it basically focuses on the fuel substrates and nutrients you provide your body with before, during, and after a training session as a way to improve training performance. It's going to maximize recovery capacity. It improves exercise adaptations, and it's going to better body composition. And the goal, <clears throat> excuse me, is to maximize both our performance and recovery, which can yield better results in terms of muscle gain or muscle retention, depending on what phase you're in, uh, as well as your strength development and athletic performance. And then what I try to get across to people is a lot of times I get this um, very specific question and it's around is peri-workout nutrition, you know, uh, timing things, using nutrient timing only important during a building phase? Is it only important during a fat loss phase? And I think that's a really nihilistic way to look at it. It's kind of narrow-mindedly. And so what I try to get across to people is it's helpful regardless of what phase of training you're in or what phase of your nutrition you're in, because it can be especially beneficial, you know, when you're in a fat loss phase and in energy deficit, because when you're in an energy deficit for an extended period of time, your muscle glycogen is going to be depleted from the diet itself. So if you're doing hypertrophy training where you're training in say the six to say 30 rep range, this type of training relies off muscle glycogen. So if you don't have this, you'll notice that your performance can take a hit and drop off, which can impact your ability to maintain muscle and improve your body composition. But the same thing can be said about, say, in a building phase when you're in a surplus. If you're having trouble getting in an adequate amount of calories, utilizing peri-workout nutrition and really timing it around the times you're going to be hungriest, the times you're going to be most active, and the times you're going to be most receptive to nutrients is going to leverage that. And it's going to allow you to get those calories in that you need to accrue new muscle tissue. So my primary goal with peri-workout nutrition is, is basically to optimize the meals leading into training, as well as the nutrients we take in during, and then after to fuel both the training and the recovery processes. So when approaching the peri-workout window and what we should consume you know, before, during, and after a session, we need to consider the type of activity we're doing and what type of nutritional approach could benefit that activity most. Absolutely. And I think anecdotally, I like how you touched on both the benefits in a fat loss phase and the benefits in a building phase. I think anecdotally, I almost see it as more of a struggle for people to focus on in a building phase, or at least it seems like something that I like have to like hammer home a lot more frequently with clients. Because as you mentioned, like struggling with appetite, I think a lot of times like one of the mistakes people make in a building phase is just like, okay, well, I have so many calories to work with, but then that leads to like kind of deprioritizing these things and then just like cramming most of their calories in like towards the end of the day if we don't have a lot of structure around this, which can again like be relatively suboptimal. So I like how you approach that from both angles there. So let's kick this off then when we're talking about pre-workout nutrition with the pre-workout meal. Basically, what's the goal of pre-workout meal and what are the benefits we get from eating prior to training? All right. So whenever I'm approaching like meal composition or I'm looking at things, I really like to look at like a needs analysis. And this is what I do with mm -hmm. clients, even from the, the start of them working with me. When they have a body composition goal, I'm first looking at their initial starting photos. I'm saying, what body parts do they have to bring up? What are their strengths and their deficits within their training as well as their body composition? So if someone has lagging body parts, um, and I'm relating this back to training because I think a lot of people will relate to this more than the nutritional aspect but there's going to be a lot of crossover. So I'm looking at these deficits and I'm looking also at these leverage points. What levers can I pull to really um, amplify this person's results in their training? The same type of approach in terms of mentality I take to nutrition and especially within the peri-workout window. So when it comes to pre-workout, I have several like focuses and goals with every pre-workout meal that I design. And I do see it from that needs analysis perspective. And the first thing that we need to cover and just keep in mind when we're thinking about fueling an activity is that, you know, in most cases, the people that are listening to this, they're trying to build muscle. So we're doing resistance training and that's mostly an anaerobic activity. So it's glucose dependent and fueled by carbohydrate metabolism. So when we look at what our goals or what our needs are, rather, first and foremost, we want amino acid and glucose availability. We want adequate hydration. And this doesn't mean just water because a lot of people get that misconstrued. Hydration, if you look in the literature and if you look at like an actual definition of hydration, it's the presence of both water, so fluids, and electrolytes, which a lot of people overlook. And that's why we see people that have a lot of electrolyte deficiencies or they're, they're missing, they have an imbalance with their sodium-potassium ratios, or even those that do like a low-carb diet, they suffer from like keto flu because they aren't dialing in their electrolytes. So this is where I'm talking about 
you know, Perry work on nutrition and nutrient timing, this relates to everything. It's meal composition, it's food sources, it's macronutrient intake, it is uh, electrolytes and micronutrient intake. It's also supplementation. There's a lot of little details, but these little details add up and can compound over time to give you much better results. And then the last need or last thing that I'm looking at is we want to avoid GI discomfort because that's going to be something that is not only going to inhibit digestion and absorption of those nutrients, but it's also going to cause that discomfort that could interrupt your training performance. So if you're going into training, you're all bloated and you're distended, it's going to impact your training performance. So with a pre-workout meal, I'm looking to prioritize protein and carb intake as the goal of the meal should be to take in protein. And the reason for that is we want to promote anabolism by stimulating muscle protein synthesis. We also want to uh, mitigate catabolism by minimizing protein breakdown. And I'm also going to combine that with, you know, consuming carbs because like I said before, we're doing resistance training. So we want to fuel this glucose dependent activity. We want to also stabilize blood sugar. So we aren't experiencing dips in blood sugar, which can often result in like lowered energy levels or that feeling of going hypoglycemic. Like a lot of people will say that they experience And then we also want to increase the potential for cell swelling so we get better pumps and muscular fullness. And not that that's a necessity, but let's be honest, all of us like seeing pumps in the gym. So when it comes to timing, like fats specifically, because like I I mentioned, the high priority principles of a pre-workout meal are going to be protein and carbs, but there are going to be certain cases where I do utilize fats. But honestly, I don't see this as something that's necessary for the pre-workout meal. Um, you know, I may add in fats to stabilize blood sugar further, but I won't, I, I usually won't use a large amount, which could delay gastric emptying and impede digestion. And so we, we also want to make sure we're adequately hydrated. Like I mentioned before. So this meaning both fluids and electrolytes, because we see that just a few percent decrease in hydration levels can impair training performance outcomes. And anyone that's gone into the gym and either really had like a exhaustive day where they were underhydrated, they really sweated, or they went on vacation. I'll tell you this from my own personal experience. When I go on vacation and I'm in hot climates because I'm from the Northeast, I notice that I have to significantly increase both my water intake as well as my electrolyte intake, specifically my sodium, my potassium, and my magnesium intake, or I'll experience cramping. I'll experience like low energy levels. So these are things that could definitely impair your training performance. And the other things that a lot of people don't highlight, and we're going to go into this a little bit in more detail later, but You want to also make sure you're not hungry prior to training um, because that can just decrease performance in itself and can increase your like perceived, um, your your, like thought process around your perceived exertion during a session. Like think about anytime you've been in a diet and you've been super hungry, you're just distracted. You can't get zoned in. It's like you're thinking about what's going to go in your stomach post-workout more than like taking your next set to the house. So we can also improve just your cognitive function as well as your physical performance by decreasing that hunger. And we have recent breakfast studies that are showing that just by quenching hunger, we can improve performance. Okay. So definitely a lot of benefits to eating pre-workout. So then talk us through how you would actually approach this pre-workout. All right. So with the pre-workout meal, first and foremost, we want to look at timing because this is about nutrient timing. So Generally, I'm looking to time this meal within like one to two hours prior to training, if it fits in the client's schedule. But generally, that's that's the advice that I would suggest. And with that, I'm looking at first, we're going to prioritize protein. So we're going to get a lean protein source or even like, you know, a whole pro, uh, a whey protein for quick digestion, amino acid uptake. And say if you're using a whey protein product or a whey protein powder, you can honestly get away with a little bit of a lower protein dose. Whereas if you're using a whole food protein source, you're going to want to eat a little bit more because whey has a higher leucine content gram for gram compared to whole food protein sources. So I think that's something that a lot of people overlook when they're utilizing like, and if it fits your macros approach, if they have 30 grams of protein or 20 grams of protein per se for some females, and they're doing it, it says just 20 grams. If they get it from something that has a lower amino acid content, say like uh, turkey, then a whey product, they're not going to, they're probably not going to hit their leucine threshold, which is around three grams or more per meal. So we want to make sure that if we're using a whey product, you can get away with a little bit less. But if you're utilizing a whole food protein or a whole food source of protein, utilize a little bit more just to make sure that you're fully stimulating muscle protein synthesis. Then from a carb perspective, I'm generally looking at quick acting carbs that will sit well with the client and will maintain a steady stream of insulin and will stabilize blood sugar in the process. And usually I'll bias simple carbs because they break down 
easier and digest more quickly than say something like uh, a complex carbohydrate. And that's basically due to the fact that they have less fiber. So your body can essentially process these like a little bit smoother and extract energy out of it in a quicker fashion. So we're not going through the process of having to wait a longer period of time to essentially break down those glucose molecules and get into the bloodstream. And so what I generally do is I like to pair carb sources. And this is actually something that we covered very briefly in our last uh, coaches roundtable. But generally what I do with clients is I'll do a glucose-based carb source with a fruit source so that we get both a source of glucose and fructose, which provides your body with multiple avenues to absorb and digest these carbohydrates better. Because glucose uses the GLUT4 translocator or transporter, and then fructose uses GLUT5. So it's two different transporters. So you can not only more readily absorb carbohydrates, but you have less gastric distress. On top of that, I'm also going to add in uh, salt to aid in carb transport and to maintain electrolyte levels and increase hydration as well as give better and you know fuller pumps. And then when it comes to fats, you know I might potentially you know put in like a moderate intake of quick digesting fats like MCT oil to stabilize blood sugar. More if someone is training, say two hours or more after that meal. But I'm going to make sure that I don't use such a bolus dose, such a large dose that this is going to slow down digestion, the transit of the other nutrients too much. Now, the one thing is I, I specifically said MCT oil. And the reason I said that was because MCT oil, when we really look at it, it digests very similarly to carbohydrates. So it's something that's going to get absorbed readily into the bloodstream. It's not going to sit um, as, as much as you know something like an olive oil. Um, so fat intake overall will depend on how far before your training session, you're eating your pre-workout meal. So if someone is training, say, two or more hours after eating their pre-workout meal, I'll generally include a moderate amount of quick uh, digesting fats like the MCT oil to stabilize their blood sugar more. But if someone's training, like, say, 30 to 60 minutes within you know, the time that they ate that pre-workout meal, I'm going to go with the lower fat approach. There's going to be no necessity for that. They're going to stabilize blood sugar. I also utilize intra-workout nutrition, so it's not like they're getting these um, peaks and valleys in blood sugar. So this is not something that's really a consideration for them, but like the overall composition of your pre-workout meal in terms of both the size and then the food source selection is really going to depend on how long in advance you're eating this meal in comparison to the time that you're training. So if you're eating, like I gave the example, 30 to 60 minutes from your workout, you're going to want to favor food sources that are faster digesting and ones that have less food volume. So you're not going into the workout, like feeling stuffed and feeling bloated. But if you are that person that you do prefer, whether it's due to preference or due to schedule, where you need to eat your pre-workout meal further from the time that you start your training, you can afford to go with slower digesting carbohydrates and some more added fats. And another thing I'll, I'll utilize is during a fat loss phase, if I have a client that's dealing with hunger issues, you know, and we know, you know I'm going to go into some of the research on hunger and its um, detrimental impact on performance, I might use more complex carbohydrates. I might opt for a sweet potato. I might opt for oats with, with a fruit source and really slow down that gastric emptying and that digestion so that they stay fuller for longer. So they have some fiber in there. They're getting the benefit of some micronutrients, but if someone's in a building phase and I'm really trying to optimize their ability to get in calories, to maintain their appetite and really facilitate better digestion, I'm going to go with those quicker acting, simple carb sources. So overall, like when I'm thinking about pre-workout nutrition, what I want you guys all to think about is there's some primary goals. We want to first stimulate muscle protein synthesis we want to stabilize blood sugar, we want to hydrate, and then also we want to optimize digestion so that we can go into the workout both well-fueled and properly hydrated without dealing with any digestive issues or blood sugar fluctuations that can impair your training intensity and your performance, and then overall how you feel entering the gym and during your sessions. Absolutely. Okay. So a few follow-up questions on that. As far as protein goes, is there a specific like threshold of protein like about Okay, for larger males, about 40 grams, maybe for smaller individuals, closer to 20, 30 grams that you're trying to hit. Yeah, so when we look into the research, um, there is threshold effects, but they vary in terms of when you're timing these nutrients or when you're taking the protein, what state you're in when you're taking this protein, whether you're fasted, whether you're ready, having multiple meals, having compounded, whether you're taking it in post-workout. So really what we want to look for is hitting a leucine threshold. So generally what we see is the leucine threshold is three grams at a minimum. So that's going to vary. Like I mentioned for whey protein, generally whey protein is, you know, I'm from, you know, I worked in the supplement industry for years. So if you look at a high quality whey protein isolate, they generally should be 11% of protein from leucine. Meaning if you get a 30 gram dose, you're generally with a very high quality. So we're talking, you know, a 90% protein isolate, which you would have to get. Um, like a third-party verification test to actually verify that. 
However, I'll give you an example of what I use. I worked for a company called Nutribile. They're one of the leading um, protein manufacturers in the country. And so with their protein, 30 grams of their whey isolate, meaning 30 grams of protein from whey isolate, yields about 3.2 to 3.3 grams of leucine. So it is 11%, like I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at, if I took 30 grams from, say, a 94 six ground turkey, it's not going to yield that same leucine threshold. So we also have some literature, and I believe it's out of Stu Phillips lab out of McMaster, that there's another threshold that you could aim for on an individual body weight basis. And the number I believe is 0.045 grams per kilogram. Meaning if you're hundred kilograms, you want to aim for 4.5 grams of leucine and we would titrate that. So for a female it would obviously be lower based on their body weight. So generally what I'm recommending is no lower than 20 to 25 grams of protein for a small female. So I work with some females that are say hundred pounds, you know, I'm, I'm aiming at least 25 grams of protein, but I had guys going all the way up to 50, 55 grams of protein. And then also when we look at it from a pro or a nutrient timing perspective, we basically want essentially even space meals throughout the course of the day and even doses of protein. That doesn't mean that it has to be, if you're eating 200 grams of protein across four meals, it has to be exactly 50 grams, but we don't want to have this undulation, meaning we don't want to go have 20 grams at breakfast, 70 grams at lunch, and you know, 110 grams at night. So that's really where you know some of the people that practice <clears throat> time-restricted feeding or like one meal a day, they're kind of getting it wrong because they're, they are getting in total protein intake, but they're not sufficiently stimulating muscle protein synthesis on a meal by meal basis. We have to keep in mind that muscle protein synthesis is a very energy expensive process. So what ends up happening is we can only stimulate that for so much time. And there's something called the muscle full effect. So generally what we see is most protein sources will stimulate MPS between three and five hours. And on the, the, the latter end of that range will be a whole food protein source that has a slower digestion. And on the lower end, so the three hour range is going to be like a whey protein isolate. So that's really where we want to time, you know, the dose as well as when we time those protein feedings. So generally my recommendation is no lower than four protein feedings per day. Try to make them evenly split both in terms of dose as well as timing. So if you eat in a 16 hour window, you know, you sleep for eight hours, you eat for 16 hours, every three or four hours take enough, you know, a bolus dose of protein. Okay, absolutely. So then when we're getting into the actual amount of carbohydrate in that pre-workout meal, and again, I, I know this varies by like our timing. Can you give us some general recommendations as far as the actual like dosage or amount there? Yeah, so this is going to be highly individual and it's going to depend on what phase of training that person's in. If they're in an energy deficit, how much am I biasing? So generally I'm looking at percentages more than I am gram amounts. Um, I know the ISSN recommends one gram per kilogram of body weight. However, say I have a female that's 45 kilograms, so around 100 pounds, and she only has 140 grams to play with. Am I going to take 45 or 50 grams in allocated pre-workout? Potentially, but you know it might make for very uh, a very sparse dose the rest of the day. So it's really going to be individual specific. I will say that I utilize between. 50 and 70% of total carbohydrate intake for the day around the peri-workout window, meaning pre, during, and post. Post is going to be where I bias the majority of carbohydrates just due to the increase in insulin sensitivity and our ability to uptake glucose, as well as the fact that we've depleted glycogen during that training session. So we want to replenish that, but I'm generally going with 25 to 30% of daily carbohydrate intake in that pre-workout meal. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Um, so, and it, let me know if I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here and like, this is something you want to cover later. So it sounds like then from a, if we only have like X amount of carbs to work with, right? Like in that case of like a female client who does have relatively limited carbs, would you still like bias more pre-workout or bias more post-workout or still try to like split those pretty evenly? So this is generally what I'm going to do. It's, it's going to depend on the, the client in and of themselves. Um, some people like, I'm going to get feedback from a client. When do you feel hungriest? Mm -hmm. Do you want to train on a fuller stomach? Do you feel a benefit from taking carbohydrates, a, more of a bolus dose pre-workout? I have cer certain clients that like having a, a higher split of, in terms of having a higher percentage of their carbohydrates pre-workout as compared to post-workout and some it's vice versa. But if I'm going to go from an optimization standpoint, this is how I'm going to look at it from, um, like a hierarchical perspective. Mm -hmm. The largest dose of uh, carbohydrates is going to be post-workout. The second largest is going to be um, 
pre-workout. I'm going to have a, a dose intra-workout if the person has those calories to play with. And then the next largest serving of um, carbs is going to be at breakfast because we see through chrononutrition research that that's when we're most insulin sensitive. And uh, we have the best response to a high carbohydrate feeding outside of the uh, training window. Okay. You did a wonderful job pulling the question that I was actually trying to ask out of that jumble of words. So, okay. Wonderful. <laughs> um, and then well, last question before we move on here, as far as the fat intake goes, it sounds like generally like, Hey, if it's less than two hours, probably anywhere from like a zero to five, to maybe zero to 10 grams of fat is fine, but it's definitely not something you're prioritizing. If we're like getting close to that two hour window or longer before we're going to be training, we're consuming this pre-workout meal. What's like a pretty general range there? Is it like somewhere between 10 to 15 grams of fat about that you would aim for or fill us in on that? Yeah, I'm generally not going to go beyond 15 grams of fat. And that's going to include both added fats as well as trace fat. So the fat that we're incurring through meats, uh, even, you know, if we have some oatmeal, it's going to have some fat sources in there. So I'm considering everything, but I really don't want to, here's my whole thing with pre-workout is I don't want to delay gastric emptying. I don't want to delay digestion, but also I'm allocating a large portion of their total calories from carbohydrates in that meal, as well as post-workout. So what I really try to look at it for is I look at the peri-workout window. So pre, during, and post as the greatest time periods in which we're going to take in carbohydrates. So the most amount of energy from carbohydrates, and then the, the um, time period outside of that peri-workout window as when we utilize fats the most. And it aims for more of an even distribution of different macronutrients. So higher amounts of fats outside of the peri-workout window, and then higher percentage of carbs inside that window. So depending, it's really going to depend on how many uh, calories and macros that client has to play with. But say someone's in an energy deficit um, and they're in a fat loss phase, I'm not going to pull from fats that I could utilize at breakfast or at their final meal of the day to increase satiety just add to their pre-workout meal to slow it down even more. I'll utilize a slower digesting complex carb source to slow that down and to, you know, I, I will add some fats, but it won't be an egregious amount, which is going to really take away from their ability to feel satiated in other meals. Okay, absolutely. So both from a satiation perspective, and then as you mentioned, like training is a very anaerobic activity. So basically we're focusing on matching the fuel to the demand and thus it makes sense for us to have more fat and slightly fewer carbs than our meals where we're doing lower intensity, around when we're doing lower intensity activity, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Like if we really look at it, we really confer no benefit from taking in fats pre or post-workout. Like from a performance, from an, um, an adaptation perspective, from a muscle building perspective, it really serves no benefits. And when we really look at fats from what their function is, it's to improve hormonal balance. It's to help increase the intake or the absorption of fat soluble minerals and vitamins. But these aren't nutrients that we're going to be taking in. We're not going to be taking in a multivitamin pre or post-workout because that's going to have an antioxidant effect that's actually going to lower our ability to adapt to training. So I'm looking at what is the right tool for the right job? And what I mean by that is what is the right macronutrient composition and intake pre intern post workouts optimize what we're going for. And in that training window, we're not looking to increase absorption of fat soluble vitamins or any of that, those type of functions that fats would serve. We're trying to optimize performance. We're trying to increase energy. And even from like an energy perspective, fats go off of aerobic metabolism, meaning it's a slow digestion or it's a slow process of converting fats into ATP, which we don't utilize in the process of resistance training. So to really bias more of those fats pre or post-workout, would kind of be, um, um, I don't want to say a misuse, but it wouldn't be the most advantageous use of those macronutrients in that time period. Okay, that makes complete sense. So tell me then, what's your take on training fasted versus having a pre-workout meal? <clears throat> All right, so I'm going to be honest with you. I am not a fan of going into resistance training session fasted. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons for that. Um, we really got to think about it is when you're training, you're breaking down tissue, which requires you to stimulate muscle protein synthesis to recover, adapt, and build tissue. But we need amino acid availability for that. So we even see that there's research that has shown that taking in protein pre-training can be more important than post-training in terms of building muscle over the long term. So if you're going in fasted, you're completely fasted. I mean, no essential amino acids, no protein. You're putting yourself at a disadvantageous perspective, not only from a fuel perspective, but also from an ability to adapt to your training, which is what we, sh we should go to, tr to train if you're looking to build muscle, your, your intention with training isn't to burn calories or to quote unquote burn fat during your session. It should be to pro provide an overloading stimulus, which you need to adapt to. And part of that process is having the nutrition in line to do that. So 
we really got to think about the fact that we want to have elevated levels of amino acids in the blood when we train, and we're in that process of breaking down muscle proteins. So having that amino acid availability is beneficial to kickstart the process of recovery rather than going and fasting, uh, you know, in a fasted state and simply waiting until you finish training to have a post-workout protein feeding. Because if you do go and fast and then you wait until after you to eat, you're going to delay the recovery process because you don't have amino acids in the blood. And then you also have to wait for your post-workout protein to get absorbed and start the repair and recovery process. So what we have to realize is when we take in protein, it's not immediately absorbed. Even if you take away isolate, it takes about 45 to 60 minutes to peak plasma levels in terms of amino acids actually showing up in the blood. So say that you go and fasted, you've, um, you were in an overnight fast of eight hours. You didn't eat anything. You woke up, you went into the gym for two hours, that's 10 hours being fasted. And now you have like another hour window where your body's now just trying to get those amino acids in the blood. That's a long period to go without, you know, to be essentially in a catabolic state. So essentially, if you're going into training fasted, it not only leaves you going to this session in a suboptimal state from a fueling perspective, but it also leaves you going in where you're not fully hydrated. And you're also, your liver glycogen is depleted from the overnight fast which can cause you to burn through your energy reserves quicker. So now you don't have blood glucose or, you know, you have blood glucose, but you don't have fully stored uh, glycogen stores. You have depleted liver glycogen. You don't have amino acid availability. So if someone was to tell me, listen, um, I, I don't want to eat carbohydrates. They're on a keto diet or whatever it may be. We want to at least go into a training session in a state of hyper amino acidemia, meaning we want to at least consume some pre-workout protein so that we're not going into this training in a fasted state which is catabolic. Like we have to realize that training is, it breaks down muscle tissue. And if you're already fasted, you're going to be catabolic. So it's, you're going to be compounding that even more through the process of training, which increases cortisol as well as muscle protein breakdown. So there are a lot of benefits to not only consuming protein from a muscle preservation perspective, but also carbohydrates pre-workout as well. Um, and then also like we've mentioned previous times, we have to realize what are we doing and what our, our nutri- what is our nutrition going to do for us if we, we leverage it to our advantage? And for higher intensity activities like resistance training that are anaerobic, they rely on endogenous carb sources, meaning the glycogen stored in your muscles to fuel these activities. So if you're starting a training session in a glycogen depleting state, like if you went in to train fasted, or if you're in a, like a severe deficit, or if you're in a ketogenic diet and you're just not taking in a sufficient amount of carbohydrates, you're going to be at a um, disadvantage from that perspective. And so the pre-workout meal is even more important when you're fasting or even when you're dieting. This is another thing. A lot of people, they'll tell me that they want to burn extra fat and they, they go into their weight training sessions during a fat loss phase in a fasted state. And it's like, you know, I'm kind of shaking my head. I'm like, you're, you're adding insult to injury because you're already predisposed to losing muscle. And now you're, you're kind of increasing your propensity for that because your glycogen levels are lower in both of these states, which can hinder your performance in the gym. And then another thing that a lot of people don't take into consideration when I say like glycogen stores is that glycogen is only stored in the muscle, but it's, you know, it's not only stored in the muscle, but it's also depleted intramuscularly. So for example, if you're saying training delts and arms in a depleted state, your body can't take glycogen that's stored in your legs and use that to fuel that delt and arm workout. So unless you have glucose present, so say, unless you took in carbohydrates pre-workout or intra-workout. You won't be able to train these muscles as hard or efficiently. So this is why if you've ever been in, say, a fat loss phase for a continued period of time, you'll notice that if you go in fasted, you'll feel weaker. You won't be able to hit the same top sets and may lose some reps per set, which is where having a pre-workout meal can help mitigate this and maintain training performance. And carbs, you know, especially pre-workout, help in a deficit because you're already depleted from the diet in and of itself uh, in terms of both your energy and your glycogen stores. So Really, when I, I look at fasted training, I discuss it with clients, I always try to get across to them that this is a suboptimal way of going about it. And let's look at the nutrition for the, the intention. And we want to look at nutrition or the training approach and whether it's like, whenever I look at these things, I'm looking at what is necessary and um, if I should apply to a client. And really, when it comes to fasted training, it's not something that confers any type of benefit, but there are some potential drawbacks. So that's where I'm looking at a pre-workout meal. And I realize hey, listen, this is something that could benefit them. So why wouldn't we use it? Absolutely. So many good nuggets there, man. I know something I've heard a lot in the fitness industry is like a client in a building phase who has plenty of carbs coming in really because their glycogen stores are already going to be relatively full going into that session. Um, 
it doesn't matter that much if we have like a large bowl of carbs in that pre-workout meal. But like one, that's very insightful from like, we can't pull from again, like if we're doing adult and arm workout, once those glycogen stores are depleted, we can't like start pulling muscle glycogen from our legs. But two, you also touched on, we need to replenish that liver glycogen, correct? Like from the overnight fast. Yeah. And that can really only be done through fructose. So that's where I'm saying I utilize multiple transportable carbs in that pre-workout meal. <clears throat> so say if someone is like, for example, I train after my first meal because I train very early in the morning. So I'm utilizing a quick digesting, simple carbohydrate source for glucose. And then I'm also utilizing a fructose source, whether that be honey or that be strawberries or blueberries or something that's going to sit well with me. And so I'm repleting that liver glycogen. I'm increasing muscle glycogen. And now I'm going into my my training um, session, both from a, a glycogen storage perspective, well-fueled, but also from an energy perspective, we have to realize that you know food is fuel, it's calories, it's energy. So we're also going to feel better entering the gym. We're going to perform better. And that's going to compound over time. So in a building phase, for instance, if you're going in, yes, you might have fuller glycogen stores. However, if you don't feel great and you're not able to perform as well because you are training fasted, that's going to compound over time. Those lost reps, those um, less than effective sets over time, you know, in a couple sessions, it's not going to make or break you, but it's also about looking at this from a long-term gain perspective. So when building muscle, we really want to optimize that process, especially as we get more advanced, the more advanced you get, the more you have to dial in these little details. And then also when it comes to being in a, you know, in a deficit and being in a fallow phase, you're already depleted. You're already, you know, in a suboptimal state of nutrition to begin with. So we don't want to just go into you know, we're going to be an energy deficit in general, but we don't want to be in a state of low energy availability as we enter the gym. You know what I mean? Because that's going to impair training performance. And we have to realize that during uh, a fat loss phase, it's our training performance that's going to influence our body composition. It's going to influence our ability to maintain muscle tissue. So we have to get out of the, the fact or out of the mindset of trying to chase, you know, quote unquote weight loss and realize we're looking for fat loss and muscle maintenance and preservation. And to do that, having a pre-workout meal is going to optimize your ability to, to actually uh, accomplish that. Absolutely. So to kind of play the devil's advocate here, what if we just have someone that trains super early? So for example, I know like some of my clients training at 5am or they just struggle to eat a large breakfast. Absolutely. So I have tons of, and I'll say this from my perspective, this is my situation. And I have tons of clients that are in a very similar boat. So if I do have a client that trains early in the AM, I'll usually have them consume a powdered meal in the form of like a shake containing say like a whey isolate and then a carb powder, which will be easily and quickly digested and will sit lighter on their stomach. So we still have some nutrients. We're stimulating muscle protein synthesis. We're getting in glucose in their system. We're maintaining and we're stabilizing blood sugar. But this is something you could literally you know, down 30 minutes before going to the gym, you know, um, protein's going to digest between 45 and 60 minutes. These carbs are getting, they're already going to be pre-digested. They're going to get right into your bloodstream. Then another option I've used is having, you know, a client make a large intro workout shake where I'll have them use like a higher dose of carbs and EAAs than I usually have them use in just their regular intro workout. If they had a pre-workout and I'll have them consume it upon wake. And then as they drive to the gym and then I have them finish it before their last set in the gym. And so, you know, besides trying to get fuel into them, one of my main concerns, especially with morning training, is the hydration aspect because we know that just a 1% to 2% loss in fluids can negatively impact training performance. So really my first thing is hydrate before anything. And, you know, I always tell clients, hydrate before you caffeinate, meaning a lot of people will grab like a stimulant or they'll grab a coffee and something that will theoretically dehydrate you because caffeine has an effect on diuresis. So it'll help you excrete water. But I'm always saying, listen, we have to start with hydration first. So that's a really big um, focus of mine. I'm trying to get water into their, their system and, and electrolytes and sodium and things of that sort. So that's where that intro workout, if I have someone that literally gets up, they're already dressed for the gym, they walk right out the door. I already had them have pre-made the intro workout shake the night before. And then they're able to sip on it on the way to the gym. They're starting to load up those carbohydrates. They're stabilizing their blood sugar. They're getting a surge of insulin um, and they're able to you know, go into that state with some nutrients available in the blood so that they're not in that catabolic state, which is only going to get further compounded through training and through muscle protein breakdown. Okay. Absolutely. Um, is so with like the hydrate before you caffeinate, do you think that people like immediately go into caffeine? Is that in of itself? Like sometimes I know that like just from personal anecdote, like if the first thing I do is just chug caffeine, 
I'll feel pretty nauseous. And that's when I really start to like, like struggle to like get more down after that. Is there like science behind that? Or is that just any thoughts on that? Honestly, from a, a digestive perspective, that I'm honestly not sure about that. I do know that di, um, caffeine and especially coffee can have uh, an effect on increasing gut motility, meaning your transit of, you know, you go to the bathroom. Um, right. However, the nausea I haven't heard, you know, from many people, it is very person specific, but I just mean from the caffeine or hydrate before you caffeinate. A lot of times I'll ask clients about the regular schedule when they come to me and I say, what do you drink in the morning? What do you do first thing upon waking? Give me your schedule. I want to hear from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed. And what I often notice is that the number one thing it's never, I drink water or I have some lemon water or, you know, I have some electrolytes. It's always the caffeine first. And what we have to realize is overnight, we're dissipating fluid. So the reason why we often wake up uh, lighter in the morning than we do at night, besides the fact that there's food volume in our stomach, is that we lose a good percentage of our hydration overnight. And that comes in the form of both uh, fluids and electrolytes. So what I like clients to do is have some type of rehydration formula. And that can be as simple as having um, you know, a 16 to 32 ounce water with uh, 500 milligrams of sodium from pink salt or something of that sort, or even an electrolyte supplement a replacement so that we're getting in the nutrients we lost overnight first. That's the priority. So really when we look at it, it's what do we need to replenish first? We don't need to replenish caffeine. That's not an essential nutrient, whereas sodium is. So it's looking at it from a needs analysis perspective. What do we need to do first? And then if they want to have coffee or they want to have their favorite fat burner or whatever it is, by all means, go ahead with it. But first, instead of putting yourself, you're already dehydrated and then you're going to put in caffeine in your system, which is going to further that effect. Let's first focus on hydration and then go into the rest of your morning routine. Okay. That makes complete sense. Um, any other benefits of having a pre-workout meal you don't feel like you touched on here? Yeah, so honestly, we have um, some recent research, which I'm looking forward to diving into on pre-workout meals specifically, and this is something that really opened up my eyes. I've been <clears throat> keeping a, a close eye on this literature for the last couple of years because I've always found benefits from having pre-workout meals. And I've, I'm someone that has trained fasted. I've tried it myself. I've tried intermittent fasting. I'm big into experimenting. I see training. I see coaching. I see all of this as you know, kind of a self-experiment. What I've tried on myself, then I've taken notes. I've gauged my progress or even my regression at times. Like things, for instance, I tried fasted training for about six to seven months at one time and just noticed that my performance dropped off. I was, I don't want to say I noticeably lost muscle because once you've been training for a long period of time, your ability to maintain muscle, even on low volumes is pretty, um, pretty well kept. And also the fact that I dialed in my post-workout nutrition, but even from the perspective of how I recovered, how I felt in the gym, all these aspects were, were essentially down-regulated or suboptimal or, you know, um, substandard in comparison to when I had a pre-workout meal. So I've been really keeping an eye out on the pre-workout literature, especially in terms of carbohydrates, because we've really gotten into an era where, you know, the ketogenic diet and low carb dieting has really gotten like a resurgence of, of popularity in the last couple of years. So a lot of people will say you don't need carbs. Um, resistant training doesn't deplete glycogen that much. So we don't really need carbohydrates. And so this is something I've really kept a watchful eye on. And just recently we've had a series of studies that um, by a group led by a guy named Naharudin that have looked at the effects of having a pre-training feeding compared to not having a pre-training meal. And they've actually done three different studies where they use the same resistance training protocol, which consisted of four sets of bench and then four sets of uh, squats to failure at 70% of their one rep max. So this was between, you know, in the studies, if you look at it, it was generally averaging between like 10 and 20 reps per set. Um, so this was you know, we have to, you know, take in the context. This is fairly low volume compared to what many of us would do in our own training. But the benefit of using this standardized approach is that they utilize the same training program for all three of their studies. So we can see over time, what were the specific benefits? This is an isolated variable. And the only thing that changed throughout the course of these three studies was the nutritional interventions they use. So in 2019, they did their first study and they took a group and had them either complete a resistance training session utilizing two different nutritional approaches. So this was a crossover design. Essentially what that means is that each person in each group, they do both conditions. So they do one condition, then they do another condition at, after a washout period. So in one condition, they, they had a carb-based uh, pre-workout meal. And the other condition, they just had them consume water pre-workout. So essentially we're looking at a pre-workout meal versus fasted training. And what this initial study was looking to investigate was whether a pre-workout meal 
would impact their volume capacity and ability to produce more reps per set. So this is something that we really got to think about because we know volume is one of the key drivers of hypertrophy. So the group that ate the carb-based breakfast ended up getting more reps and having a greater volume capacity as compared to the water-only condition in the study. So we saw that, you know, um, they had a better outcome having a pre-workout meal. But this was the thing. If you look at the conclusion of the study and the researcher's analysis, they weren't sure if these outcomes were a result of directly of glucose availability or if there could be some like psychological effect, a satiety effect, or any of other outcomes. There wasn't enough information. It was only a, a limited study with a small group of participants. So they decided to do a follow-up study. And then in the second study from this research group, they took the same study design and they added one other condition, which was a placebo breakfast in the form of this like flavored sludge that had barely any calories in it. I believe it had like 24, 25 calories in it. So it was barely anything. So in this condition, the participants didn't know if they were actually consuming something with calories or not, because it was in the same form as the carb-containing breakfast that had 400 calories. And the finding of these studies were, of this specific study was super interesting as both the carb-containing condition and the placebo meal condition both had similar training performance to one another and both exceeded the performance of the water-only condition. So in this study, the placebo group having the pre-workout sludge reported that they felt fuller after eating this, just like they did with the calorie-containing meal. So this benefit in theory could be, you know, this benefit in performance could be in theory partially mediated by increasing satiety. Because if we really look at it, there was about a 400 calorie difference between groups. One had close to 100 grams of carbohydrates and one had trace carbohydrates from like fiber, but they both had very similar training outcomes in terms of performance and both exceeded a zero calorie condition. And really when we think of it from a fueling perspective, zero calorie water and a 24 calorie sludge, they really shouldn't have that big of differences in performance from an energy or a fueling perspective. So they ended up doing a recent study that actually just came out in December, uh, was pre-press release. And in the third and most recent study from this group, they used the same training. So the four sets of bench, four sets of squats, but modified the conditions used in terms of the pre-workout meals they used. So they had one condition in which they ate a carb-containing sludge pre-workout. So now they took the sludge, the same type of viscosity, they put uh, like xanthan gum, they made it thick. So it was like a sludge pre-workout and it contained calories in it. Then they had another condition that was a carb-containing pre-workout meal, but this was in the form of a liquid. So it was a drink, but both the sludge and the drink were calorie equated. So both same amount of carbohydrates, same amount of calories. And then the last condition, they utilized the water only. So the fasted training condition yet again. And the reasoning for comparing both a carb-containing sludge versus a drink was they said that they wanted to test the effect that having a solid carb-containing meal that would you know, theoretically induce greater satiety could have in comparison to a carb-based meal that was in liquid form, uh, which would obviously lead to lower ratings of fullness. And so in this most recent study, they found that the carb-sludge condition outperformed the carb-drink condition, despite the fact that they had the same amount of calories which shows that having a pre-workout meal that induces satiety can increase performance as not going into a workout hungry can help reduce mental and physical fatigue. So basically what this leads us to really, you know, kind of glean from the research, obviously this is not going to be the end all be all, but a lot of times what I try to do with research is if I see something working with hundreds of clients that I've worked with or with myself, I'm always trying to look for, is there any clinical evidence that reinforces what I'm seeing? That when I utilize a pre-workout meal compared to going and fasted, does that client or do I experience a better performance outcome? And that's what we're seeing in this study. And what they're really trying to, to get across is that we basically want to make sure that we're not going into training in a fasted state or in a state where we're hungry. As, you know, theoretically, this, this state of hunger can signal to the body that you're in a state of low energy availability. And then also, like I mentioned previously, if, think about it. If you're hungry, if you're in an energy deficit, if you're fasted and you're, you're thinking about food during your workout, you're going to be distracted by that hunger and you're going to lack focus. And you're also going to be more likely to accumulate fatigue during your workout, both mentally and physically. So this is really uh, kind of confirmatory you know, research, which shows there is a benefit to consuming something pre-workout, both in terms of carbs, because it is a benefit. Both groups had glucose availability, but also something that satiates you to some degree. doesn't mean you have to go in bursting full, but you want to have something that's going to help you feel satiated. It's going to help you, you know, feel better physically, mentally, energetically. And then also there is some other preliminary research that indicates that having a greater, there is a greater benefit of having a pre-workout meal when you're utilizing higher volumes of training. And this is important because this is a fairly low volume training study. So if we extrapolate that out and we think about most people are doing more than eight working sets, especially, you know, this was 
two body parts and eight working sets total. So if we take that as someone that's training harder, uh, training with higher intensities, as well as higher volumes of training, it's going to be even more of a benefit if you do have a pre-workout meal, which both has carbohydrates and then also satiates you. So you don't go in hungry. You don't go in the state of low energy availability. So it kind of just uh, reinforces the fact that going into training, you know, without anything in your system going in fasted is going to put you at um, a suboptimal state, especially from a performance perspective, but also think about that over time, less performance, you know, decrements, higher, uh, increased fatigue. You're going to have to take more time off from the gym, more frequent deloads. You're going to have less adaptation, less ability to, um, overload your training over time. And that's going to lead to less gains. So overall, like this is another, you know, line of research that just reinforces the fact of what many of us know, uh, you know, if you talk to any bodybuilder from the last 20, 30 years, they're never going to tell you they're going in fasted. I mean, you know, so it's not that everything that they've done is, is the right way. However, often success leaves clues. Absolutely. Uh, so, so nicely summed up. I think it's important again, like you can look at this as like, well, I felt okay when I trained fasted the other day. Right. So why not continue to do it? But again, like the difference between a pretty mediocrely fueled and pretty mediocrely recovered from training session when we compound that across a year versus a bunch of training sessions where we do very well fueled and very well recovered. That is going to be a pretty sizable difference in the body composition you have at the end of that year. The research on like the, the meals and like how they impact performance is so interesting. Also um, kind of reminds me of the carbohydrate rinsing where, and I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that, but I believe, I think they did this in sprinters where they just had them like switch a carb solution in their mouth and spit it out. They actually still saw like there were some improvements in performance just from like having in your mouth. I'm not sure if that's something you're familiar with or like if you have a different take on that, but just, just an interesting. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, to touch on the carb uh, mouth rinsing studies, that was actually done intra workout and they've done it on endurance athletes as well as in other conditions. Okay. I know that okay. I believe Chris Barricat is actually um, in the process or was in the process of doing a carbohydrate mouth rinsing um, research study on resistance training athletes. And really what we see is it, this is super interesting because it does show that there's both a physiological effects to carbohydrates as well as a psychological effect to carbohydrates. Because what we know is from this research is that we have carb sensing uh, mechanisms in the mouth. So you can actually maintain training performance by just swishing carbs in your mouth during training um, because these carb sensing mechanisms, essentially what this research shows is they get activated. And they signal that energy is available, which can reduce central fatigue. So this is one indicator. This is one way to lower uh, fatigue levels. And I know that one study, I believe they used Powerade. And what they compared was Powerade with carbohydrates versus uh, that zero calorie Powerade or uh, Powerade yeah. zero. Yeah. And they saw a better, they saw that the regular carb containing Powerade beat out the zero carb version. Um, in terms of training performance, despite the fact that they tasted exactly the same and that per participants were blinded. So they didn't know. So this is really essentially mediated effect. And then other things, uh, other studies within, there's actually a full line of carb rinsing, uh, mouth rinsing studies. There's another, um, there's other research that indicates that it improves dopamine concentrations in the brain. So it's kind of like increasing motivation. So it's almost like from like an evolutionary perspective, I kind of see it from the perspective of, listen, you know, I don't have anything in my system, but I'm, I'm sensing the presence of carbohydrates in the mouth. Remember, there's a cephalic phase of digestion and it starts when carbohydrates enter the mouth because carbohydrates are digested first through salivary amylase. So in your, your mouth first and foremost, and then once they get pulled into the small intestines, they get broken down into glucose. But the first step is through salivary um, amylase. So that cephalic phase, it's going to release insulin. So I don't know if they've done studies on this. I haven't seen it in the literature, but even just that release of insulin can have an anti-catabolic effect where it's mitigating protein breakdown. It's also going to help lower central fatigue because our brain, its main fuel source for the brain is glucose. So if it senses, you know, from the mouth to the brain, hey, I have glucose available. I have energy substrate. I have our preferred fuel source available. It's going to give them a little bit, you know, in my theory or in my, you know, um, perspective, it gives us almost like an off switch where we don't have to be on high alert. Like, you know, we're starving or we're fasted or we're in a state where we're at a disadvantage, you know, a disadvantage for performance. So it's really, I find those really interesting because you're technically not consuming any calories, but you're getting a performance increase. So both physiologically, psychologically, physically, mentally, we're seeing all these benefits from pre-workout and intra-workout carbohydrates. This shit is just truly so cool and interesting. Um, 
Cool. Well, we are already at about an hour. So I know we've covered like peri-workout nutrition, nutrient timing, why that is important, really dug deep into the pre-workout meal. So let's go ahead and wrap this up here. And then in part two, we'll be digging deep into intra-workout, post-workout, and a few other considerations. Sound good? Yeah, absolutely. So overall, just a little bit of a wrap up pre-workout guys, we really want to maximize muscle protein uh, synthesis. Want to make sure that we go into our training sessions in a state of high amino acid availability, as well as glucose availability from an energy perspective, and also from a fueling perspective. Think about carbs as your, your driver for performance. And so with that, let's prioritize carbs and protein pre-workout to optimize both your training performance, but also your recovery, which we're going to get into, you know, in depth in our next, you know, our part two of this. But really, if you are someone that's training fasted and it's something that you're set in your ways, by all means. But what I really do suggest and what I always try to, you know, I have clients that come to me all the time and they're kind of set in their ways. And I always tell, you know, I always try to get across to people, if what you're doing hasn't worked for you or hasn't gotten you to where you want to be, you have to be willing to try something different. So the only thing I suggest is take the information that you you gleaned in this podcast and just apply it. Try it for a week. Try it for two weeks. You literally lose nothing in the process, but what you do get is an opportunity to learn, does this work for me? And does it confer a benefit? And if it does, then you have another tool in your toolbox to utilize to drive your performance and your progression forward. Whereas if you keep staying doing the same exact thing you're doing. You're training fasted and you're not seeing the results in terms of your training performance, your recovery capacity, and your growth and gains. You're going to limit yourself by not being open-minded enough to at least try this. Absolutely, man. Again, I think there's a question, okay, how, how's that working for you? Like, like what you're doing currently? I think that's just one of the most powerful things you can ask yourself because I, I get it. Like with conversations like this, it can easily seem like we're getting pretty deep into the nuances. And as we touched on, like, hey, it might not be the first priority if you're brand new to this. But again, if you are more intermediate to advanced, you are going to reap a good amount of benefits that fits from this. And it probably is something like if you want to continue to progress over time, you probably will need to continue to dial in. So um, as always, dude, thank you so much for being here. I am stoked to get into part two here shortly, and we will catch you all then.